Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of Paul's little letters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 8. This will provide us with a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is in Proverbs chapter 6. Before we turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now the word of the Lord. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians, urging them to sexual purity. And once again, like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul connects this command to the presence of God's Spirit within us. He has given us His Holy Spirit. He also connects it, though, here to the will of God for our lives, that we should be sanctified. That is to say, that because God is holy, we should be holy like Him. And because His Holy Spirit dwells within us, we should experience throughout our lifetime this, I'm going to coin a word here, holization, like this becoming holy. That's the better way to say it, isn't it? It, that we should have without, throughout our life this experience of the Holy Spirit making within us a greater and greater, or as he says here, a more and more abundant holiness. There is a purity that belongs to the people of God in whom the pure Spirit of God dwells. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 6. The sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Solomon has been introducing his son to the topic of wisdom. In chapters 1 through 3, he explained to him what wisdom is. Knowing God and God's will for your life. He then explains to him how you get wisdom. By listening carefully to the word of God, to those who know the word of God. Then he explains to his son what that wisdom will do to him. It will conform him to the image and likeness of God. In order to make that point plain to his son, he then gives his son eight essential qualities that he should be aiming for. 
that he should be anticipating. That if we're going to be like God, we're going to resemble him in these eight qualities. Generosity, listening, walking, working, purity, truthfulness. And now again, Solomon will return to purity. But this time, in chapter 5, he had focused simply on sort of broad sexual purity. But here in chapter 6, he will focus specifically on marital fidelity and the importance of marriage. He'll actually return to the same topic next week in Proverbs chapter 7, where he'll focus on another aspect. But this morning, the wisdom of marriage, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman from the flattering tongue of the seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased. Though you give him many gifts. Amen. And amen. As many of you know, when I was a little boy, I was fond of wandering over the fields and through the woods of our farm. Particularly in summer, I like to get up early in the morning and to be out with that first bit of dawn light. One morning late in summer, I got up and I went out to wander over the fields and through the forest of the farm and Just as I was going down the road from our house, coming out past the sand pit, just past the edge of that first forest, I heard a low rumble and a crunch and a groan to my right. I looked out carefully around the tree line, and down in the cornfield in the valley below were two small black bears locked in fun. They were rumbling and rolling about, crushing all the corn they could reach. They thought it was great sport. They were having a grand old time, growling at each other, snipping and biting and clawing. And I thought to myself, that is so cute. I want to run down there and wrestle with those bears. (laughs) And then I thought, 
That's how a man dies. So I thought, well, I'll just stay here and watch them and enjoy the entertainment. And then I thought, no, that's another way a man dies. So finally, my little teenage brain thought, I'll just leave. And I went as silently and as carefully as I could back up the hill, back behind the trees, and disappeared, never seeing the little bears again. Solomon, this morning, warns his son. There are some situations in life that if you walk into them, they are death. And there are some situations in life in which if you linger near them, they are deadly. And that the best and only thing you can do, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is flee. Flee sexual immorality. Solomon teaches his son this morning that sexual immorality, that is specifically adultery, is death. But he also teaches him that Christ is life. This is the truth for us this morning. That we should learn that sin is death. Sexual immorality is death. Adultery is death. But Jesus Christ is life. Beloved, the truth for us this morning is that Jesus is a faithful husband. Jesus is a faithful husband. So be united to him. Be united to Christ. With this in mind, let's look at our text this morning. Notice in verses 20 and 21, Solomon, as he often does, begins this section by urging his son to be attentive to his parents' teaching. In verse 20, he says, keep your father's command. Guard it. Watch over it. Keep it in close proximity. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Do not neglect it. Don't leave it behind somewhere. Don't stop paying attention to it. He wants his son to keep his parents' instruction in close proximity, and so he gives him a metaphor with which to understand this concept. In verse 21, he says, Bind it continually upon your heart. That is to say, take your parents' instruction, take some cloth, some string, stick it inside your chest, and tie it tight to your heart so it doesn't go anywhere. Put your parents' teaching as deep inside of you as you can get it. Bury it deep inside of you, where it will always be with you, always directing you, always guiding you. But likewise, Solomon says in verse 21, my son, tie these instructions around your neck. That is where they can be seen. Wear them like that giant necklace with that giant jewel in front of it. That your chief treasure that you want front and center for everyone to see is your parents' instruction. In this way, hopefully you can see what Solomon means when he says to his son, keep your parents' teaching close. He means get it deep inside of you, where it will define your identity and where it will shape your life's course and decision. And what is more, get it out in front of you where all the world can see it, and you yourself especially will know that it is there. There is this identification with the parent's instruction that Solomon expects and desires. 
It's consistent with Jesus' teaching in the New Testament where he says to us, out of the heart flow the issues of life. If we want faithful speech, we need first a heart full of good instruction. If we want good godly decision making, we need first an interior transformed by good teaching and faithful instruction. Get deep inside of you your parents' teaching. But then make sure you bring it back out, too. Express it in the way you think, act, speak, and live. Now, the application of this is pretty straightforward for the kids, right? You kids know where this is going, right? When your parents give you instruction, don't do the in one ear, out the other ear, right? When your parents give you instruction, little children, get it deep inside, Listen carefully and attentively. Make sure those words and those instructions that go into the ears also go down into the heart where it'll stay with you the rest of your life. Likewise, tie that instruction around your neck. That is, bring it out into your life, the way you do your schoolwork, the way you clean your room, the way you go to bed on time, the way you eat your vegetables. Let there be evidence that you are listening to your parents. Of course... This passage also applies to parents, too, doesn't it? Parents, make sure that when you instruct your children, you are telling them something worth making the center of their identity. Make sure you are telling them something that is worth transforming their whole existence around that truth. You see, by the inner self being transformed, Solomon points parents to the importance of right belief, sound doctrine. And by telling them to wear the instruction around the neck, he reminds parents that they must also train their children in right behavior, in right action. It is so easy as parents to become specialists in one or the other. That we believe that right doctrine will save our kids. And so we just pump them full of truth. And they memorize Westminster. And they can separate infra and superlapsarian. And they can't fight their way out of temptation for 10 minutes. We've given them right belief. But not right action. Not right behavior. The other side of the coin is just as easy. We train them in behavior modification. We exercise authority and dominion over them. We say, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. And we shape them, but we never touch their heart. We never give them truth. Solomon says to both parent and child alike, let there be a loving relationship in which truth is served to the soul and correction to the behavior. That we would train up children who know the truth, love the truth, and practice the truth. I've belabored this point a little bit because it shapes the rest of the text, does it not? It becomes critically important when we come face to face with the adulterous woman and we realize that our children are no match for the seduction of sin unless they know both right belief, and right behavior. To that end, Solomon then explains to his son by way of metaphor 
how this law of the parents, the instruction of the parents, when impressed into the heart and evidence in the life, will keep him safe. Verse 22, he gives three parallels. Verse 23, he gives three more parallels. These two sets of three work together to express how a parent's instruction can save a child's life. Number one, when it roams, it leads you. When you roam, rather, it leads you. Also, when you sleep, it keeps you. And when you awake, it speaks with you. That is to say, a parent's instruction rightly embedded in a child's heart and expressed in a child's way of life accompanies the child wherever he or she goes. If they roam far in the land, going to college, marrying so-and-so, getting a job here or there, it yet goes before them. It is instruction that leads and guides and helps them to choose not this road, that road, helps them to stay put or to go forward. Likewise, when it sleeps, the parent's instruction is like a covering over them, guarding and protecting. And when it awakes, the instruction is there to counsel, to speak, to advise, to order the day aright. In like manner, in verse 23, Solomon tells his son that this commandment, this law, this reproof of instruction is like a lamp, a light. Psalm 119, you may remember, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Again, all my 1990s praise song singers, right? You know? There's a word that is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The teaching of my parents. It is the way of life. But by this metaphor, both the metaphor in verse 22 and the metaphor in verse 23, Solomon points his parental instruction to Jesus. For who is the lamp of the world? Who is the light of the world? It is Jesus. Who is the light unto our feet and the lamp unto our path? It is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the true and living way. It is Jesus. What is more, who leads us to still waters and green pastures? Who keeps us in the valley of the shadow of death? Who speaks with us face to face as with a friend? The shepherding metaphor in verse 22 points us to Jesus. The illuminating metaphor in verse 23 points us to Jesus. So once again, dear children, why must you let the parents' teaching get deep into your heart? Because they're teaching you Jesus. Dear parents, what must you teach when teaching your children? Jesus. Teach them right belief. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done. Teach them right behavior. Here's what Jesus wants you to do. The teaching must be rooted in Christ. The teaching must be pointing to Christ. And then the teaching comes deep into the heart, transforming the life. And union with Christ through this teaching of the good word keeps us safe. This is Solomon's instruction for his son. This is his vision. That if the teaching, which is Christ, will get deep into your heart and transform your life, then you can survive. Survive what? Solomon teaches his son one example. There are many. This is but one example of the dark and deadly dangers that fill this life 
which Christ and Christ alone can keep us safe from. The evil woman. The immoral woman. This wicked woman is here described as having three powers. In verse 24, she has a flattering tongue of seduction. In verse 25, she has a beauty that causes lust in the heart. And likewise, in verse 25, she has eyelids that allure. These three in parallel complete the picture. Here is a woman capable of leading any son astray. Now, it's worth me saying in our present culture, this is not unique to the young men in the congregation. I'm sorry, ladies, but there are plenty of men who are just as wicked as this woman. Sons and daughters alike must be on guard. Solomon is writing to his son, so he puts this in the position of a seductive woman. But trust me, ladies, there's plenty of seductive men who will seek to inspire lust in your heart and allure you with their looks. Both men and women have reason to be on guard and to recognize the darkness and deadly danger of this sexual immorality. These three tools, the flattering tongue, the lusts inspiring beauty, and the alluring eyelids, require the sun to be well defended, well guarded, we might say well armored, if you get where I'm going with that, in order to resist this temptation. First, he needs to be deaf to the flattering tongue. To do this, the young son must pour into his ears the instruction of his parents. If his ears are constantly filled with the truth of Jesus Christ, then the siren song that would shipwreck his soul of the seductress is a lot less loud. He can resist with his deafness listening to Christ and not to her. Lusting in the heart for her beauty in like manner, he needs that teaching of his parents, that teaching of Jesus Christ embedded deep into his heart so that there isn't room for lust and for longing after her beauty. Instead, there is a superlative beauty, a greater beauty that's embedded in his heart, the beauty of Jesus Christ. That if he hears the words of Christ, the words of the seductress sound harsh and cruel. That if he hears and knows the beauty and love of Jesus Christ, he is impervious to the attractions and beauty of the adulterous woman. And likewise, the allure of her eyelids. How many of you can see my eyelids? You really can't, can you? This is my way of like begging you for eye contact. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you must be very close to another human being to actually be allured by his or her eyelids. Solomon says to his son, hey, keep your distance. If your ears are full of Jesus, if your heart is full of Jesus, then you're not going to be standing six inches away where her eyelids are drawing you in and you're drunk and intoxicated with her beauty. No, my son, you keep distance from her. You stay away from that deadly danger, which in verse 26 would turn you into a crust of bread. She is the adulterous woman who would eat you up and devour and consume you. She will prey upon your precious life. And the way to stay alive is to keep your distance. To be deaf to her words, 
to be resistant to her affections and her allurements. For that we need Christ. We need a greater beauty, a better beauty, the sweet sound of Christ. Let me illustrate it. Saruman, you guys had to know Tolkien was going to show up, right? Saruman was known for a sweet and pleasing voice. A voice that just captivated the ear and won the heart. When he is in negotiations with Gandalf after his citadel has fallen, everyone is stunned to hear throughout the conversation the voice of Saruman slowly become harsh and grating as Gandalf slowly pulls back the truth and exposes Saruman for the corruption that he is. This is how Christ works in us. That that which looks so seductive and desirable, that sin, and yes, Solomon here picked sexual immorality for a reason, but my friends, surely we note that this is true of all sin. These three allurements match the same three that Eve faced with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the longing of the human heart that gives birth to sin and to death, says James, follows this pattern. It is Christ and Christ alone we need in the center of our being. To give us a new heart, a heart that does not lust. To give us new ears, ears that rejoice in the truth. To give us new eyes. That like Job would say, I have made a covenant. I will not look on another woman. I will look with purity. This is what Solomon says to his son. Now to impress his claim upon his son that adultery is death, that Jesus is life, Solomon then supplies two long metaphors. These metaphors are intended to ignite the imagination so that his son can see and feel the reality that adultery kills, but Jesus saves. First, he gives him the metaphor of fire. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Where's a fireplace? Who likes a campfire? You know, when we came and we saw that backyard and, you know, the, the, the grounds laid out and all the beautiful renovation that's gone on there, all this while, I've been thinking, you know what would be awesome? A fire pit. A chiminea. That'd be so much fun. Sitting out in the back of the parsonage, roasting marshmallows, talking with friends. Did you know that the city of Cambridge has outlawed fire pits and chimeneas? Now, if you look at my backyard and you see the six houses that are about, you know, a sparks fly away, you can understand why. Because fire is dangerous. How many of you have tried to move a campfire by lifting the burning logs in your arms? Do you guys see that? Can you imagine lifting the burning logs in your arms and carrying them across the campsite? That's what Solomon says to his son. When you commit adultery, you pick up burning logs and you hold them in your arms. How many of you have tried to cross a campfire by walking across the campfire? Can you imagine that? 
the instantaneous third or first degree burns on the bottom of your feet? Solomon says this is what it's like to commit adultery. It is instant shame. It is instant guilt. There has never in the history of the world been a human being who committed adultery and then not wrestled with the instant shame and guilt. Solomon says it is a law. It is a law of human nature that we were made for purity. We were made for fidelity. And just as the flesh of a human body cannot resist the heat of the flame, so the soul of the human sinner cannot resist the guilt and shame of his sin. This, my friend, should frighten you out of the bedroom of the adulteress. But it should throw you headlong into the arms of Christ. Because you see, the opposite is true. Fire is dangerous. It is also necessary. No human civilization has ever thrived without fire. And I know, we, we live in this super-duper technological age, and we go, and like I asked you, how many of you have fireplaces? And like, none of you raised your hands. We just don't need fire anymore. Try getting home without fire with your internal combustion engine. You need fire. Like, we need fire, but we need it in the engine. We need it in the fireplace. We need it in the oven and in the stove. We need it where it belongs. In like manner, the human species cannot exist without sex. But it must be sex in marriage. It's the only safe place. It's what allows the civilization to thrive, to grow, to flourish. It's where all the kids have come from. Sorry, parents, I just gave away the secret. My friends, this is what Solomon teaches his son. There's a raging conflagration that will destroy human civilization. It's called sexual immorality. It's called adultery. But on the other hand, there is a way to deal with it. There is a good and godly way to raise our children in order to produce a healthy, thriving human civilization. It's called marriage. What's the dividing line between marriage and adultery? Ephesians chapter 5. This is a mystery that speaks of Christ and the church. You see, my friends, adultery is heinous and hideous. It is destructive for humanity. And it stands as a contrast to the reality and hope of Jesus Christ, who offers to us in his wedded love a new body that just as we embrace flaming hot coals that sear our skin and destroy our flesh, so in our sin we have embraced self-destruction, indeed suicide. But Christ is a good and faithful husband who unites himself to this ruined flesh so that in his resurrection he can give us new flesh. He's the kind of husband who marries an adulterous bride and makes her faithful. He's the kind of husband who takes the flesh-scarred, ruined body, buries it in the ground, and then raises it glorious and immortal. Do you not see that sin kills your body and Christ saves it? He saves it. Solomon gives a second metaphor. It's theft. 
People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy when he is starving, yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Solomon sets this up as an argument from the lesser to the greater. If a starving thief steals, nobody hates him. Nobody's angry with him. They have compassion. They have pity. You know what else? They require justice. Their compassion and their pity does not undo his need to repay. Indeed, he will repay to the full extent of what he has stolen, even if it bankrupts and empties his house. A starving thief will have to pay, even if he ends up homeless, penniless, and broken. It doesn't matter. You must repay. In like manner, Solomon argues that adultery will require repayment. Only he notes in verse 32 that the repayment isn't pecuniary. It's not financial. No, rather, the one who repays adultery repays with his own soul's destruction. He doesn't empty out the substance of his house. He empties out the substance of himself. This, too, is an awful warning for us. That sexual immorality is the giving away of ourselves. The stealing of the soul of others. That we're promising in our sexuality this union, this intimacy, this lifelong mutual devotion that we're not actually delivering to one another. And as a result, the destruction is unleashed within us and about us. Just as adultery burned up the body of the sinner, so we see here that adultery burns up the living of the sinner. There is no wealth left. There is no energy of soul, no strength of character, no trust, no faithfulness. And this too, in a negative way, points us to the riches of Christ a true husband, a faithful husband. That even as adultery empties out the house, empties out the soul, by in reverse, in inverse, I don't know the right word, we'll move on. The, the, the house is enriched by marital fidelity. Just as the thief has to give away everything he has earned in order to repay, the adulterer has to give away everything he's heaped up. But not so the faithfully married. They add. They add to their home children and grandchildren. They add to their home a lifetime of memory and of joy. They add to their home growth and godliness and sanctification because this marriage speaks of Christ. That Christ who dwells with us is a faithful husband to give. Adultery steals, but Christ gives. He gives all the substance of his house. Not as repayment for his debt, but repayment for yours and mine. Christ, who is faithful, takes on our adultery and indeed destroys his own soul for our sin. He is a husband so faithful that he takes of his unfaithful church, wearing her shame. If we were to use the American metaphor from literature in Hawthorne, He takes the A, he puts it on his chest. He is the one who bears the guilt and the shame. He is the one who empties out the substance of his house and destroys his soul. That we might be redeemed. That we might be found faithful in him. My friends, this text is meant to scare you away from sexual immorality. 
It is a destructive thing. It is also meant to chase you into the arms of Christ. For he is a life-giving Savior. We see this at last in the end, verses 33 through 35. Wounds in honor he will get. Wounds in dishonor he will get. And his reproach will not be wiped away. There is a permanent personal destruction to adultery. Wounds within our heart, within our body, within our very selves. Dishonor and reproach that lingers with us, reshaping our future and our lives. Why? For jealousy is a husband's fury. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense. He will not be appeased, though you give him many gifts. You see, ultimately the issue with adultery is that there's another human being involved. For 20 years, I've listened to this American culture screaming in my ear, hey, stay out of my bedroom. Let me do what I want to do in my bedroom. And my answer is, I can't. Your bedroom shapes the future of our civilization. Sex is not private. It's part of our society. It needs privacy. It needs careful treatment. But my friends, there are husbands and wives involved in adultery. There are children and there are grandchildren The reality is, is that when we unite ourselves to one another, sexually, maritally, or otherwise, we are bringing together the worlds from which we come and the worlds which we are making. There is this jealousy and this fury that infuses the vengeance, the lack of recompense and appeasement. Because the relationship is broken. Because the community is broken. Adultery kills the flesh. Adultery kills the soul. Adultery kills the community, the relationships. There is now rage and vengeance and fury aplenty. And all of this destruction leaves us in despair. My friends, I hope this text has scared you away from adultery. And shown you how awful and dark and deadly it is. But do not forget the alternative to adultery is faithfulness in marriage. Is faithfulness to one another. That there would be a healthiness in our relationships, in our humanity. And ultimately that marriage, that healthy marriage, is a picture of Christ. A picture of Jesus, who knows the fury of a husband's jealousy. Who knows the rage of the day of vengeance. Who knows what it's like to say, I have no recompense, no appeasement. There is no gift you can give me. And then according to Hosea chapter 2 says, so I will give myself. So I will give myself. You see, Jesus is a faithful husband. You see, adultery kills, but Jesus saves. Jesus gives life. So my beloved, rejoice in Him. Be united to Him. Get His words from your parents deep into your heart. Be united to Christ that you might live. Beloved, sin will kill, but Jesus gives life. So be united to Christ. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day, this beautiful word. We give you thanks that you have confronted our sin head on.
and that you have addressed our wickedness. Father, forgive us that we have too long treated this evil with indifference. Father, we thank you that though these sins, they are many, and though our death, it is most deserving, Christ has come, and he has taken upon himself our sin and our death, that in him we might have resurrection, that in him we might have restoration, that in him we might have reconciliation. We thank you for this sweet husband who has loved his church and given himself up for his church, that we, his church, might know healing and peace in him. We give you thanks for these things in Christ's name. Amen.